Welcome to Obiter Dicta, Bloomsbury Professional Ireland's podcast, where we speak on legal and tax topics. Today we are joined by Dr. David Kenny, co-author of Kelly, the Irish Constitution, and Associate Professor at Trinity College, where David lectures in Irish and Comparative Constitutional Law, Conflict of Laws, Critical Legal Theory, and Law and Literature. Thanks for coming on the show, David. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. David, lovely to chat to you. Could we start with talking about Brexit? Big topic this year. It has impacted lots of our shopping. But aside from that, what are the constitutional impacts in terms of Brexit on Ireland? Yeah, so I think what affects most of us is customs charges for shipping things from the UK and worried about getting our <laughs> deliveries through. But in broader terms, Brexit's had huge, I think, implications for the island of Ireland because of the persistent question that you know arose again and again throughout the Brexit negotiations, which was how is this going to affect Northern Ireland and the, the the Northern Irish border, and how are we going to be a border between the European Union and the United Kingdom uh, uh, with this sort of extensive and sort of unpleasable land border? And I think that as we've seen the uh, implications of the Northern Ireland Protocol in action and the growing dissatisfaction, perhaps in Northern Ireland with the implementation of that and, and what that might look like for Northern Ireland in practice. I think that it, it has several big implications for um, uh, the, sort of the Ireland and the Irish legal system. First, that we have to engage very much more carefully in North, South and East, West discussions about Ireland and Northern Ireland and trade and cooperation and trying to make sure that life across the border and life for people on both sides is as seamless as possible. And it requires perhaps a renewed effort to engage with the Good Friday Agreement institutions that were supposed to enable those sort of North, South and East, West links, which maybe were not the priority in the first 20 years of that agreement's implementation. We have to re-engage with those. And then also, you know, even though in many ways it's, it's an elephant in the room that people often don't want to, to, to think about, you know, many people for understandable reasons in Northern Ireland, they don't want it to happen in any circumstance. But something that I think Brexit has required us to do is to think about the possibility of a border poll in the medium or long term under the Good Friday Agreement, uh, a referendum on each side of the border to unify the island of Ireland, which is one of the sort of constitutionally acceptable outcomes of the Good Friday Agreement. It's one of the the, the two possibilities the Good Friday Agreement uh, envisages. Either Northern Ireland stays in a union with Great Britain or it joins a, a united Ireland. And I think that was until uh, at Brexit and its implementation, something of a fringe topic. It wasn't something that anyone thought was uh, sort of foreseeable, even in the medium or, or long term. And there was no sort of planning or preparation. And since the Brexit vote and since the fallout of the Brexit vote, more work has had to been done on, you know, even what that vote would look like if it should ever come about, examining what the Good Friday Agreement really says about that and what it means. And so I think it's caused a great deal more attention to be paid to those big questions for Ireland and Northern Ireland and, and Britain uh, in terms of what it, the constitutional future of Northern Ireland would look like and what we might have to do in, in down here in the South in order to prepare for uh, uh, any of those different futures. And I think Brexit's caused a lot of work for us in that respect. It really has, David. Um, I heard you say previously that the Good Friday Agreement may not be sufficient to provide inspiration for a new constitution. Um, so could I ask you what 
it does guarantee are the principles which guarantee that different communities on the island will always be treated equally. And maybe you could elaborate on that. Yeah. So the Good Friday Agreement is obviously hugely important document in uh, uh, the, the sort of the constitutionalism of the, the island of Ireland. And I think that really everyone agrees that it has to form the basis of any possible um, unification in terms of it sets down what the running of referendums would look like in very broad terms. Doesn't set down the detail, but it, you know, gives us an idea of what that's supposed to look like. There has to be consent on each side of the border given concurrently. And we know from that, you know, that it's going to be a referendum north and south. But beyond that, the Good Friday Agreement doesn't really tell you how, as it terms it, a sovereign united Ireland, that's the, the Good Friday Agreement term, what that would look like. Uh, would it involve writing an entirely new constitution? Would it involve very substantial amendments to the Irish constitution as it is, creating almost a new constitution, you know, within the framework of the old constitution? The Good Friday Agreement can't answer those questions. It wasn't designed to. What it does do is it guarantees some perpetual uh, uh, guarantees for identity and citizenship and sort of belonging and identity. There are principles in the Good Friday Agreement that any United Ireland would have to honour. It would have to honour a right to um, hold dual citizenship with uh, uh, with Britain for anyone who wanted it. It would have to honour, I think, a commitment that people could identify as British or Irish or both in Northern Ireland. I think that would be essential and a sort of perpetual commitment that that state would have to carry on from the Good Friday Agreement. But there are also really important principles in that agreement that I think would be essential to incorporate, like rigorous impartiality and parity of esteem. The idea that the state has to work on behalf of all communities equally and fairly, and fundamentally the state discriminating against different groups to disadvantage one community or the other would be sort of fundamentally constitutionally outlawed. I think that's something that would have to carry over as well. So the Good Friday Agreement sort of provides some really important core principles in that way, some principles around inclusion and around what the state would have to do to make sure it behaved fairly toward everyone on the island. But it's just not specific enough to give us a good sense of what that new United Ireland state would look like. And so a huge amount of imagination and planning and engagement would be needed to think about what that would uh, would mean in practice, what that state would would ultimately uh, take shape as. But the problem, of course, is that there are very many people on the island who don't want to engage in that conversation, who see any uh, uh, conversation along those lines, any form of detailed planning as a, a sort of a, a, an attack on the future that they want, which does not involve a, a united Ireland of any sort. So it's very difficult to engage in inclusive conversations about uh, what that, you know, future should look like when a large group of people that would necessarily have to be involved in it don't want any part of it. So I think the problem that we face now is for the sake of avoiding a Brexit style unknown vote where people face a referendum question, but they don't really know what the different options would mean in practice. To avoid that, we'd have to plan, look at what a united Ireland would look like, give people some idea. But to do that inclusively, we'd have to engage with a group of people who frankly don't want to have this conversation. And that's a real problem. We face a sort of a a challenge uh, to want to plan on the one hand, even if you don't 
you know, want to advance this as a cause, you might think that we should plan for it. But at the same time, those who are vigorously opposed to it don't want any planning whatsoever because planning only makes it more likely or uh, less problematic and they want it to not happen. So they have no incentive, I think, to engage. And I think that'll be a real challenge if Brexit proves to be difficult for Northern Ireland. And if this issue comes on the agenda, it's a real issue that we're going to have to face. David, do you think that when we were entering into Brexit four years ago and we heard about this, do you think that we saw any of this coming down the track? I think quite a number of people on the island of Ireland saw this coming as a problem, that if Brexit went ahead, there was no obvious solution to the Irish border and that it was going to be perhaps the biggest issue in the negotiations. I think it's fair to say, looking closely at the actual debates on Brexit, that it wasn't necessarily carefully considered uh, in Great Britain. That, you know, the, 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 um, ultimately, the, that debate played out along different lines. And if the Northern Irish question was raised, which it occasionally was, its importance was perhaps diminished as if something could be easily worked out to, to solve that, that, that problem. I think the intercedings of five years have shown us that's not the case. It was perhaps the biggest single problem with negotiating Brexit. And I think that was probably more obvious to people who thought a lot about Ireland and Northern Ireland and, and, and understood the reality of the border. And it's probably fair to say that on the, 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 the debate in Britain that wasn't fully appreciated. And even perhaps until Brexit happened, the EU might not have appreciated how difficult that was going to be either. I think the EU came around very quickly to the idea that Northern Ireland was extremely uh, central to the Brexit negotiations. But perhaps uh, only on this island did people understand before the vote quite what the stakes were. Um, I'm sure you saw the poll in the Sunday Independent a few weeks ago where a lot of people were polled and there was a huge majority who said that they were in favour of a united Ireland. And in one way, I was quite surprised at that. Um, but in another way, I wasn't because I think COVID really uh, showed the the very big difference between the way Ireland was handling the crisis and the UK and then what, what was happening with Northern Ireland. And we're seeing that kind of now with people travelling across the border to travel. But do you think that COVID has kind of put this more to the fore? Yeah, I do think that the the issues that arose around COVID showed the necessity of an all-island strategy for a number of you know, really important uh, public health initiatives that w- we needed to try and implement on an all-island basis. And it was very, very difficult, understandably, to Uh, work that out with the authorities in Northern Ireland and uh, uh, in the broader United Kingdom. And I think that perhaps more than, uh, uh, you know, any issue outside of Brexit in recent times, that brought home the need to have, at the very least, very extensive North-South cooperation. And I think that's what the Shared Island Unit and the Department of the Taoiseach is looking at, sort of things like that, not necessarily looking at, at unity as a, you know, its focus, but as mechanism to try and build really robust cooperation. But in terms of, you know, changing people's minds on or or, or persuading people as to a, a, a united Ireland, it might have had an impact. I think that support in the South has been reasonably robust sort of in recent years. You, you'll get a fairly high proportion of people, um, uh, you know, supporting the idea of a united Ireland in principle. 
what's important, I think, with any polling uh, on the, the Irish electorate and referendums is to remember that we tend to drift toward no in practice, that often you will see polling is fairly significantly above the actual yes vote that you'll get in the end. So for a referendum to sort of uh, uh, pass, you need to have a very robust yes vote going into a campaign, which may get whittled down a little bit. Um, in terms of the, the the Northern Ireland question, I think it really would matter um, what we were telling people they were voting on as well. I think Irish people look at the details of referendum proposals a lot. There's a number of examples in the past sort of 15 years of measures that Irish voters were actually quite in favour of in principle, but voted against in practice because they didn't like the details of the proposal. So I think it would uh, matter a lot um, what the the campaign was like, what we could tell people they were voting for. But I think there's no denying that a very substantial uh, majority of people in the South are strongly in favour and principle of unification if if that issue comes up. And I think that the polling has has consistently uh, illustrated that. And I'm sure you noted in that poll that people weren't quite so eager to pay, have to pay for any costs associated with the Republic, but may have uh, skipped over one of the, the key things in any discussion over Brexit and and United Ireland would be, you know, the situation in the north, because it's still quite difficult up there. Absolutely. And, you know, the the recent tensions, I think, have shown the the, the fact that Northern Ireland is still in a in a very difficult situation with the, the the communities living together. What's what's interesting, I think, if you look at various sort of you know um, uh, uh, polling and and um, surveys that take place in terms of opinion in Northern Ireland, what's interesting is that younger people tend to identify not with the traditional uh, nationalist unionist divide nearly as strongly as as older generations do, and often don't like being. Um, placed in in those groupings and would rather develop different identities and different communities that embrace sort of broader diversities of traditions rather than than just those two. So it might be that that will lead to a a time in the future where a slightly uh, less fractious debate about unification could happen. But I think it's very important to understand that at the moment and for the foreseeable future, this is a hugely divisive issue. And that even talking about unification, even raising these issues is something that's likely to be uh, uh, you know, very unpleasant for a very significant portion of the, the people in Northern Ireland. And I think it's very important that uh, we bear that in mind when we're having those conversations and that when we're thinking about what a, a united Irish state could look like, that we try and design a state that's highly inclusive and that would accommodate people uh, as much as it possibly could to make them feel that they were uh, uh, well served in this endeavour and a part of it rather than alienated from it. But I think that's very difficult to do. We've touched on it a tiny bit already, but maybe just to spend a little bit of time thinking about the COVID-19 pandemic Mm. and the constitutional issues raised by it. Um, Obviously, we've seen Ireland's emergency powers used during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, It's been incredibly interesting to see the laws enacted since the start of of this time. Um, Where have we stood on the constitutional aspects of these? Were they guidelines? Were they law? (laughs) 
Yeah, this is something that we've been working on a lot. And we have a, a set up about a year ago, uh, a body called the, the COVID-19 Law and Human Rights Observatory in, in Trinity, where a number of us have been sort of keeping an eye on the laws that have been passed and the regulations that we've had. And in many ways, we've responded admirably. Um, I think broadly, we've acted in a way that's necessary and, and proportionate to the, the very difficult circumstances we faced. There are a number of things that people sort of might take issue with and, and, and object to. And, and I think there's, there's uh, fair arguments on, on some uh, points of opposition that people have, particularly around, let's say, a very uh, a broad ban on religious services more recently. But for us watching this uh, from, a, from a law and human rights point of view and a constitutional point of view, the biggest concern has been the blurring of uh, advice and guidance on the one hand and law on the other. And we've had this really since the earliest days of the pandemic. We had it at the very start when people were told to cocoon inside their homes, uh, as it was called, if they were over the age of 70. And this is at a time we were all essentially supposed to be you know, locked in unless we were going out for exercise or to the shops. And people over 70 essentially were being advised that they shouldn't even do that. They should stay inside their homes, not even go out to exercise, go to the shop, etc. And it was sort of presented as if that was a law, like the other measures were laws. We couldn't leave our house and, except to exercise and, and so on. But there was no law about over 70 staying in their homes. That was just a piece of public health advice that they could decide for themselves if it was appropriate to follow or if they had exigent reasons, then they could follow the same rules as, as everyone else. But it was presented as if that was a legal rule that bound them, and it wasn't. Similarly, for most of the pandemic, we were advised that if we left the country and came back, we should self-isolate in our homes for 14 days. And it was, again, strongly suggested that was a legal requirement. But for almost all of the pandemic, it actually was not. Um, it was a piece of advice. Your only legal obligation was to fill out a locator form to tell the authorities where you would be for the couple of weeks after you arrived. You had no obligation uh, legally to self-isolate. But that was presented as you are required to self-isolate. And people, I think, fairly assumed that this was a, uh, a piece of law, not a piece of advice. And then we've had a recent, um, uh, uh, mentioned briefly a minute ago, but a recent controversy around masses and the, the idea of religious services generally. And this was, I think, a huge um, issue because the state presented the idea that this was a criminal prohibition and some people who organized masses were given fixed penalty notices for doing that. And in our opinion, my, myself and, and Oren Doyle at, at the observatory looked at this very closely. In our opinion, that was incorrect. It actually wasn't a, a criminal prohibition to uh, organize or attend religious services, that the government was mistaken in thinking that it was and that this was perhaps an error of drafting, but it just, it just wasn't, uh, as far as we were concerned, a crime. In the end, a new regulation was passed, making it very clearly a crime for the last few weeks of this most recent lockdown, sort of resolving that ambiguity in favour of, of it definitely being uh, illegal. But the fact that it was so unclear for so long that even perhaps the authorities were unclear on what the, the rules were and, and what weren't included in the rules, that's really concerning. And it's concerning to us from a constitutional point of view and a rule of law point of view, because the idea behind the rule of law one of the core ideas in it is that you should know what the laws are 
be able to know very clearly what your legal obligations are, what the consequences would be if you step over the line, that that information should be available and should be clear. And for the government to kind of blur the lines and suggest to you you have a legal obligation when you don't, that's really concerning for us. Bad governance, I think it's fair to say, and really not a way that state power should be used. The state should be really clear in terms of what it's doing and what it's requiring of you. And in particular, in, in COVID-19, we gave really extraordinary powers to the state. We still have given really extraordinary powers to the state. And they're gradually using them less and less, but the powers are still there. And if things don't go as well as we hope, we could go back into a period of, of very severe lockdown again. And if you entrust the government with powers that extensive, where you can, you know, make the most sweeping restrictions on movement and freedoms in the history of the state, you have to trust that those are going to be used responsibly. And I think in this respect, in terms of being clear on what was law, what was guidance, uh, uh, what was really required of people, it, this wasn't done responsibly. And I think that was a, a really unfortunate uh, part of our pandemic response, which, as I said, on the whole, has been proportionate. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was very much following all of your commentary on the the issue of religious services and I, you were writing online and in the papers. But I guess maybe just to follow up and see what the position is now, there seemed to be quite a bit of confusion as well of thinking um, that only one type of religious service, that mass was the only thing that was impacted by this. But in fact, of course, in Ireland, there are multiple expressions of religious services. Yes. So we heard mostly about masses, but actually it was all religious services. And really, ultimately, when the, the full criminal prohibition was brought in, an awful lot of ancillary religious activities, you know, um, uh, people engaging in sort of not, not even mass religious gatherings, but smaller religious gatherings was also included. And, you know, people might be aware that a high court case taken by Declan Ganley challenged the constitutionality of the, that restriction. And so the first issue was, you know, is there a restriction at all? Uh, because that, that, that was, um, you know, a matter of dispute. That became clearer when the rules changed. But, uh, as far as I'm aware, that case is, is still ongoing. Um, uh, as of the 10th of May, religious services are now allowed again. But that case can still go forward because, of course, a prohibition like that could be reintroduced uh, at some later point. So I think it would be good if that case ultimately did reach resolution because there's been cases in various different parts of the world suggesting that restrictions on religious services it was a disproportionate infringement of the rights of religious people, that there were ways of ensuring public health short of blanket bans on religious gatherings in general. And the Irish Constitution protects in Article 44 a fairly robust uh, protection for freedom of religious practice. And so the argument in that case will be that there wasn't uh, a good and sufficient reason to target these religious services when compared to other similar kinds of gatherings that they could have provided some, even if it was small, even if it was minor, accommodation for religious gatherings, and they and they didn't. And that in doing that, they might have violated uh, religious freedom under the Constitution. That'd be a really interesting case uh, to go to judgment. Uh, I don't know if it will succeed. Um, it's always very difficult to, to win any case like that. But I think that would be a really useful way of testing the proportionality of some of the, the pandemic restrictions that we had get the courts to rule on whether or not that was an appropriate response to the public health situation that we were in at the time. Yeah, and I think, I, I know you've spoken about it a little bit, but just 
to maybe give an overview of how you think the government has handled the crisis in terms of dealing with all of these unprecedented decisions and moments? Yeah, I think it's been an exceptionally hard job. It's probably been the hardest to, you know, task uh, that, that a government has been set. The problems that we've had have been about communication, about making it clear to people who's in charge, uh, who's making decisions, who's responsible for these decisions, and what is legally required of people versus what are we asking you to do. And I think the interesting thing is the Irish people are are, are very responsible on the whole and, and, and very compliant when people ask them to do something in the public interest. Because of that, they deserve to be communicated with very clearly, to be told exactly what's going on, who's making decisions and why, and exactly what the law is expecting of them, what punishments they face if they violate this rule, or that this is not a rule, but we really like if you adjusted your behaviour in accordance with this advice. I think that the, the, the real failures that the government's had in terms of COVID-19 have been related to the communication of those messages. And um, that, that's something that again, is very difficult. It's been a huge communications challenge, but that's where I think that the problems really have emerged. David, um, can we talk about the quarantine? And we've been reporting on the various legal challenges that have been Mm. taking place over the last number of weeks. Um, There has been criticism of the government that they should have done this last year. Now they've introduced it. Where do we stand on the constitutionality issues surrounding quarantine? It is in principle, constitutional to do this, meaning that, you know, it is possible, I think, to have a regime of mandatory hotel quarantine that is constitutional. And if the public need is great enough, if you can show there is enough of a benefit from a program like this, then I think it is possible to justify the restriction on liberty and the restriction on travel that this quarantine imposes. But the devil is always in the details, as I sort of I think said in, in, in that article. You have to see how it's done. And many of the criticisms that the, the regime has faced probably come from its design as much as it existing in principle, though some people are just opposed to it in general, and, and that's fine. But a lot of the, the opposition, I think, comes from the idea that some of these um, Uh, measures could have been more finely tuned. There could have been an exception for people who are fully vaccinated and and test negative, for example, and that wasn't uh, included. There could have been a provision to uh, almost appeal in advance for a humanitarian exemption from this regime. So before you arrive in the, the hotel to quarantine, you might have been able to apply to the Irish state and say, I need to return to go to the, the bedside of a loved one who's who's dying or to attend a funeral. I, I need to be exempted from this. And there is a an appeal mechanism inside the Act, but you have to essentially arrive first, be undergoing the quarantine and then lodge the appeal. And again, if some of these things had been slightly more finely tuned, some of the problems might have been avoided. Um, if a, constitu- a full constitutional challenge to the regime goes ahead, it'll be really interesting to see what happens, because it is a very significant restriction on liberty. But the government would say it has a major public health benefit, potentially as well, in terms of stopping spread of new variants of the the, the virus, which could be very significant in terms of, of Ireland's public health situation overall. So the regime is not perfectly drawn. It has some, I think, um, uh, perhaps flaws in its execution. But so do most statutory and regulatory regimes, it's very difficult to get it just right. There's almost always something that emerges later on that you might have done better. And so we can't demand perfection of our laws. We can only demand that they are 
you know, good enough and reasonable and proportionate. And so with something like this quarantine regime, there have been some very hard cases and uh, some people who've, you know, faced some some quite difficult situations by being by being put in a position where they have to, to quarantine. But at the same time, there is potentially, and the government would have to present evidence of this in court, but potentially this big public health benefit. And when we look at infringements on rights, we always look at proportionality, this idea of the overall cost of the measure to people's rights being weighed against the benefit that we do for the common good and for society in general. So that's really what it'll come down to. And I would be fascinated to see what uh, the Irish courts might decide in terms of this particular regime, because what I was arguing before was that it, uh, it can be constitutional, not that this particular regime is, because I was writing sort of before the, the regime had been, had been put in place and, and the legislation had been published. So I'd be very interested to see how it fares in the courts. I've been quite interested to see how it's going to fare and taken a particular interest in, in the various um, cases that have presented to the court. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, have, have you noticed this, but in in some of the cases, when the case is returned before the judge for the next day, suddenly the person is released. Um, and I just wonder, is there something deeper there that we're missing that this is happening? So, it, you know, it might be the case that the, the case being brought in that way has put attention on the person's particular facts and circumstances, and that maybe that you know, prompted a response of saying, well, it's really not appropriate to keep this person in in this uh, uh, situation. That's possible. That's possibly what happened. But certainly um, rendering the cases moot by releasing the people from uh, uh, sort of hotel quarantine and giving them no incentive to bring the case further is an advantage for the state in terms of, you know, that case doesn't proceed. Um, you, you could say that in some ways is unfortunate for court watchers like me, it's unfortunate because I want a judgment. I want, you know, something that I can write about, about whether or not this is constitutional. But it did solve the problem for those people. They were no longer in hotel quarantine. So you could say it's actually a much quicker, much better resolution of the matter for them. Uh, But it does have, shall we say, a side effect of taking away the prospect of some of these cases going forward. Now, there are other cases that you know, haven't been rendered moot because people sort of charge for not entering quarantine or for leaving quarantine. Those cases might go ahead. But yes, the, the, the particular difficult circumstances that people raise before the court have often led to people uh, being uh, sort of let out of, of, of quarantine. And that's certainly a good solution for that person. But it does mean we don't get an answer to that bigger question of, is this uh, an acceptable thing to do? And it means that the next person in that situation might still face the, the hotel quarantine regime. It's not necessarily a systemic solution for their problem. It's just that that particular person gets their problem solved. So maybe that's that's not entirely ideal. We're opening up society and we're looking forward to the possibility of traveling again. Mm. Now, you know, there's questions and everyone's wondering where we stand. And then there's people that don't want to get vaccinated. And can I ask you about where the constitutional issues mm. rely in respect of vaccine passports, not getting vaccinated, etc. Yeah, so, uh, you know, our constitution would protect fairly strongly, you know, a right to bodily integrity and a right to sort of, you know, let's say personal autonomy and medical decisions, we might say that, you know, you really should be allowed to make your own decisions on, you know, what, what 
medical treatments you get, what you 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 put into your body by way of by way of uh, uh, medical treatment or vaccination or so on. So the idea of sort of compulsory vaccinations for people would be something that I think we would be very uncomfortable with and something that would sit very uneasily with our constitutional order. So I think everyone agrees on that and there's there's very little push for, for, for any kind of mandatory inoculation, which would just be, I think, um, uh, probably beyond the, the, the pale for us. But then the question becomes, as you've said, what if we try and uh, give you an incentive or you can only do certain things um, if you have had you know, certain inoculations? Um, that's much trickier because that's not forcing you to do it, but it is essentially restricting your liberties or your ability to travel or, or engage in a certain activity unless you take a vaccination and can produce a vaccine passport and, and so on. And then sort of two questions really come up. One is sort of an equality question, which is, is it fair to treat vaccinated and unvaccinated people, you know, in different ways? And then again, a proportionality question with the rights restrictions. So what sort of freedoms might you take away from people if they refuse to, to, to get a vaccine? And is that fair? Uh, is that just? Is that proportionate? And what the argument would probably be is that there is a public health benefit from, um, you know, making sure that unvaccinated people don't engage in certain risky activities. And so we're just trying to protect the public health situation. We're not trying to force people to get vaccinated. But the effect might be that people who might be vaccine hesitant in order to engage in these activities will feel pressure to, to, to take a vaccination or to get medical treatment that they mightn't they might want to. I think that'll present real difficulties. I think it, it's a fair thing to do to have some differentiation between vaccinated and unvaccinated people, because from a public health point of view, they, they are different and they pose different risks. And in the absence of herd immunity, which would only come with a very, very high level of vaccination, there are risks with uh, uh, unvaccinated people um, engaging in certain activities. So there's probably some differentiation that would be possible, vaccine bonuses, as they've been called by the government, or vaccine passports or something, may be a, a fair thing to introduce, but we'll have to watch that very carefully. And in particular, if it becomes a form of almost coercion, that you're using uh, the promise of even getting basic freedoms back as a way to try and uh, uh, coerce people into taking a, a vaccination that they might not want. I think that's something our constitutional order would potentially have a problem with, that we, we, we don't believe that you should be sort of coerced into that sort of treatment. And so if that regime became almost a form of, of indirect coercion, there might be a constitutional argument to say that it's unfair. And, and then, David, um I suppose going back to proportionality and you, you, I suspect you're going to say the same thing. Uh, we've heard about the HSE in recent days talking about redeploying people who haven't been vaccinated. And then I suppose employers are going to worry about their staff that aren't vaccinated. So does it again come down to proportionality in, in respect to that and moving people within organisations? I think it absolutely, it absolutely does. It, it comes down ultimately, I think, to a question of the reason that you need to do that. With the HSE, it's, it's fairly self-evident in terms of the, the, the risk of COVID exposure that would come from unvaccinated people working in certain settings versus putting a vaccinated person in that setting. The risk is just qualitatively different. So I think with the HSE, the proportionality argument is very strong because it's it's quite obvious even just, you know, 
talking about it, why you feel you would want to do that. With other employment settings, it'll be, I think, more difficult to work that out. Um, you know, is there a really substantial difference from putting a vaccinated person in this role versus an unvaccinated person? Is there a real public health advantage to that? And ultimately, will we regulate what employers can do around that? Or is this something that we're going to let employers, you know, discriminate on the basis of and not monitor? Uh, I think that's a big question. And, you know, Another aspect of the pandemic, which you know I'm not not an expert in, but it, but is hugely important, is its effect on employment. And so many people have had their employment affected, and so many businesses have had to you know take state supports, and will now be trying to grapple with uh, significant burdens in terms of complying with public health measures when they reopen. And so I think some real focus on uh, employment conditions and conditions for workers, and what we're asking of business owners, both in terms of complying with COVID regulations and, uh, as you say, what they can do with their employees in terms of people being vaccinated and not. That's something that we have to be be um, uh, really mindful of. And also, I think it's important that we, we bear in mind that the vaccine rollout being based on age means that younger people will be vaccinated last and younger people have made a very, very significant sacrifice in terms of Uh, their freedoms in this pandemic when they were the ones statistically that were least at risk. So they made sacrifices essentially for the health of other people on the whole. And I think we should be very careful to try and make sure that we don't sort of punish them again by not affording them freedoms in terms of work or or, uh, socialising and so on, because they're last on the vaccine list when they've given up so much. So I think we have to be be careful about this. And I think that we have to uh, bear in mind that the costs of this pandemic have to be borne together. And certainly, I think our, our younger generations have done their part uh, in the early stages of this pandemic, and they deserve some solidarity from everyone else at this stage. Yes, and actually, speaking of younger people, maybe younger again to children, um, of course, we've had school closures for many months during this pandemic. And of course, they're back now, but there was a substantial closure. Is there any issues around even constitutionality around this? Yeah, and there was there was a, a, again a, a legal action which may or may not ultimately go ahead with with schools reopening. But there there was a, a real constitutional question because there is a constitutional right to, to free primary education and a question mark as to whether or not people were were actually get, getting that right, you know, properly vindicated in the context of pandemic closures. In particular, um, very difficult for people with certain special needs, uh, special educational needs to get proper uh, education during school closures. And that was a particularly you know, acute case. Um, there may have been possibilities for distance learning. It might not have been ideal, but it might have ticked the bare minimum of giving people some education. But there are people whose needs were very much more substantial and for whom there was no possibility of that being an equivalent. And the government was slow to to respond to those concerns, particularly when they were raised in the, in the context of the, the school closures from January. And I think uh, that the constitutional case there was was probably quite strong. That that more maybe should have been done, given that the situation is normalised. Perhaps that case won't go ahead. Um, again, it's sort of expensive and time consuming to bring a piece of litigation like that. So even if you're entitled to continue on with it, the incentive might not be there. But I think that was a real issue. And I think that we probably didn't, um, again, a very difficult situation the government faced, but we probably didn't have enough regard to uh, uh, certain educational needs that weren't going to be met 
with distance learning and, and, and over Zoom. David, moving away finally from COVID, um, we've seen a lot of talk recently about uh, the reform of the way judges are appointed. Mm. Could you talk us through some of the constitutional issues surrounding that? Sure. Yeah. So this has been a debate that um, has been going on for such a long time, uh, uh, appearing shortly before an Oireachtas committee on this topic. And I was just working out that I appeared previously before an Oireachtas committee on the exact same topic about eight years ago, I think. And, you know, nothing has happened since. Um, This has been a matter of controversy for a long time because there's been an allegation that judicial appointments in Ireland were in some small sense political, not political in the sense of the government wanted judges that would decide a certain way, but political in the sense of it was judges that they knew or judges that had some connection with the government or the government parties or were otherwise well connected in in political circles. And there was a concern that even though our judiciary has been excellent, I think, in, in, in recent years, that this was as I think the judges themselves put it when they reported on this, it was in spite of, not because of, our system of appointments, that the system of appointments wasn't really working very well. And we had good judges, but that was just good luck in some ways. And so what the the reform of appointments has been focused on is trying to move to a more rigorously merit-based system of appointment so we can be sure that the candidates being appointed are sort of the most meritorious ones. And they are the ones that, you know, have uh, uh, skill and temperament to do the job well, rather than people who are sort of politically connected in that way. The reason that's tricky is the Constitution gives the power to appoint judges to the government entirely. So at the end of the day, the government can appoint whoever they want for whatever reason they want. And you actually can't constitutionally take that power away. What you can do is guide it. So the new proposal we have for a Judicial Appointments Commission will see uh, this independent body composed of lay members and legal members assessing candidates in a more rigorous way than we have up to now and recommending a shorter list of names to government than had previously been recommended. Often they got very long lists of recommendations from the old advisory board and they didn't know who amongst those names they should pick. The idea is to give the government a shorter list of recommended names after a more rigorous process that might include interviews and other kind of, you know, uh, more rigorous assessment of the candidates. And hopefully that will mean the government will choose from the recommended candidates, which will be more rigorously picked and will have a more firmly merit-based system. Now, the government can ultimately do whatever it likes. If it wants to ignore that list and pick its own favourite person It can do that. But the idea is there would be a political cost to that. There would be sort of an embarrassment at having not selected a recommended candidate and going with your your friend instead. So the idea is to try and push the government toward making the correct choices rather than hoping that they will. So that's the, the, the proposal that we have. I think there are some concerns with the legislation as it stands at the moment, that the list going to government might still be too long. There might be too many names on it and we might need to shorten it again. That the advisory commission should rank the names um, with a number one preference and a number two and a number three preference maybe. So the government knows who the very best candidates are if the commission has an opinion on that. And uh, also perhaps concerns that the attorney general 
who's the government's chief legal advisor, is very intimately involved in the process of um, the commission and assessing the candidates. And there's a worry that that might have an outsized influence of the government on the uh, on the process of the commission. So there are still some concerns with the proposal that's going before the Oireachtas shortly, but it certainly would be an improvement. And I would be delighted if in the next couple of years we could pass legislation that really improve this process because it has been, I think, suboptimal for a very, very long time. Do you think that um, the public would have more faith in a system like this? Yeah, I think it, we should have a system of appointments that's clearly merit-based, clearly transparent, where we know there's a good independent body you know, recommending these people to be judges. And there was you know, some controversy last summer, which is the, the reason for this renewed enthusiasm for uh, uh, reform. Um, about the, the appointment of Judge Wolf, who was Attorney General and uh, 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 got made a judge of the Supreme Court. And the questions that arose in respect of that were whether or not other people who might have expressed interest in a role in the Supreme Court, other sitting judges, were fully considered by the government, or if the government perhaps picked Judge Wolf because he was a former attorney general of the, the previous government and had served the government well. Now, Judge Wolf was recommended by the uh, Judicial Appointments Advisory Board that we currently have, but he was also the only candidate that applied to that mechanism. And the other candidates were judicial promotion candidates who didn't go through that mechanism. So that perhaps showed some of the flaws of this system. We don't really know how the government decided uh, what factors it took into account and you realize that judicial appointments is a bit of a black box. And I think that that controversy, along with sort of some, some previous ones, would give the public some reason to wonder if our judicial appointment system is good. And we shouldn't have to doubt that. Uh, our judiciary on the whole, I really think, is excellent. And I think we should have an appointment system that contributes to that rather than that has the risk of undermining it. And I think our current system uh, does suffer from that risk because it's, it's really not uh, up to snuff by international standards. David, going back to that controversy, it raised one issue, and that was the difficulty of removing a judge from power. Mm. Yes. And do you think that there's going to be anything in the pipeline in respect to that? Yeah, so this the 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 judicial removal controversy, the judicial discipline controversy of last year, took up so much of our our time in the constitutional law world. It was sort of all consuming for a while because it really showed up again the inadequacy of our system uh, up to now of disciplining judges and, and removing them. And um, the reason it was so ironic in terms of its timing is there had been campaigns for a judicial council that would have a judicial disciplinary function for decades, really since maybe you know before the year 2000, thereabouts. And it only finally was getting set up last year uh, and was just sort of starting to, to wind up its process and, and, and get rules in place when this incident happened with Judge Wolf attending the, the Golfgate dinner and everyone sort of was focused on it. If this had happened a year later, we might have had a better system in place because the, the, the new Judicial Council legislation will provide for a formal process for investigating alleged judicial misconduct and also will lead ultimately to a recommendation to the Oireachtas as to whether or not someone should be removed. So that new system is going to be a massive improvement on what we had. But we had nothing this time last year and, and last August when this, when this all happened, because the relevant sections of the Act hadn't yet been commenced and introduced 
even though the Act had been passed. So I think what we can say is at least we can look forward to a better system in future in terms of judicial discipline and better processes around that. What still will be a problem is the constitutional system for removing judges is very scant on detail. The Constitution doesn't say an awful lot about a judicial removal procedure. Uh, the procedure for impeaching the president, for example, is much more detailed and specific. So we might consider a constitutional amendment to put in a, a better process because some of the inadequacies of that process were also shown up, I think, last year. Um, but certainly the, the Judicial Council Act that we will have fully in place, hopefully within maybe six months, that will massively improve the situation. And so hopefully nothing like this will happen again for a very long time. But if it does, we'll have a much better system in place for dealing with it soon. David, I'd love to ask you about life as a Bloomsbury author. I'm sure you love being a Bloomsbury author. Um, of course, you are involved in uh, one of our most prominent titles, Kelly and the Constitution. You're a co-author for that. Uh, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your involvement with that title. What were the challenges? Was there a balancing act with the other three authors? Yeah, well, it's been an absolute pleasure to be a, a Bloomsbury author, and it's been a, a wonderful uh, sort of collaborative relationship um, with with the publisher throughout, and we get tremendous support in in terms of the very difficult job of <laughs> writing that book. Um, and it, it was a real honour to to be asked to to come in and work on it. The, the, the sort of the two pre existing authors, um, Judge Jared Hogan and, and Professor Jerry White, from, who's from Trinity as well, asked two of us, myself and, and my colleague Rachel Walsh to come on board um, uh, for, for a new edition. Uh, and at that point, I think by well, the time we were asked, the, the book was probably already about 11 years since its previous edition. And in constitutional terms, it's a long time. An awful lot had happened in that 11 years, and it was going to be a few more until we, we got the book actually written. And uh, at the start, I think Rachel and I had a sort of a, such a reverence for the text, the idea of editing it and taking bits away and, and you know adding our own material was quite was quite daunting but we were made to feel very much at home and uh, uh, you know a lot of faith was put in us to to take on that work and it was a real a real pleasure to do it and seeing the impact that that book has in terms of the places that it gets cited and, and it can be influential in the Supreme Court and, and, and in decisions of the courts or in sort of major matters of sort of public constitutional controversy I feel really honored to have been to have been asked to to be an author of it um, because it's a a text that I used sort of religiously as a constitutional lawyer and as a student. And so, uh, yeah, I was really delighted to be involved. And it's been really one of the highlights of my of my career so far. It's been a delight working with you. I think just the last uh, section we have is just a lightning round of some lighter questions. Sure. Um, so uh, three items that you would bring to a desert island. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so difficult. So I would definitely, I think this is kind of cheating, but I would bring my Kindle because that would like be bringing loads of books. So rather than just bringing one book, which would be very unsatisfactory, I'll bring <laughs> loads to my, my ebook reader because uh, I'm an obsessive reader. Um, I would bring something to play podcasts or audiobooks because that's my other kind of uh, major distraction is I have a sort of a, a, a big podcast listener. So that would keep me entertained for a lot of my desert island time as well. I think I would also bring my hiking boots because I love to go walking and hopefully the desert island would have enough landmass that I could get a good walk in to kill some of the day and, and get my get my uh, 10,000 steps <laughs> that way. 
<laughs> that sounds fantastic. And since you said you're such a voracious reader, I guess, is it too much to ask for a favorite book or a book recommendation? I do, ha I do have a, a favorite book, um, which would be uh, Hilary Mantel's Bring Up the Bodies, uh, the second mm -hmm. of her Thomas Cromwell Wolf Hall trilogy. Uh, I think though all those three books are are superb and they're probably my favorite books overall but that middle one uh I think is 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 almost a perfect uh, uh novel for me. It's somehow, you know, incredibly gripping even though it's a, a sort of a Tudor history that you know, you sort of know what happens to Anne Boleyn in the end that it's not going to go well, but somehow still she keeps you on the edge of your seat as to what's going to happen and it's beautifully written and actually I think it's a great commentary on being a lawyer. I uh, wrote a piece last year in the journal Law and Literature about how Thomas Cromwell in her books is a, is a really interesting uh, archetype of, of how to be a lawyer. So I absolutely adore uh, that book. In terms of recommendation, and I'm sure actually this is one your listeners probably don't need, but I only just read it. It's new to me. Um, Dern Negrifa's Ghost in the Throat, which was um, published in 2020, an absolutely stunning uh, sort of half memoir, half history of uh, Eileen Dove Nicunnell, um, uh, author of the, the Lamenta Art O'Leary, and uh, Negrifa, who's a, a poet herself, kind of goes on this quest to almost exhume this woman who was buried in history. And it's just an absolutely wonderful book. And I um, uh, read it last weekend and I started on Saturday morning intending to kind of dip in and out and was so taken with it, I, I read it in a day. So highly recommend that to anyone who hasn't, uh, hasn't picked it up yet. When was the last time you belly laughed? Oh, um, so I've been listening to the a podcast on on audible which is um uh, an alan partridge podcast and so it's you know a joke a, a mock podcast that the character alan partridge has done and i think every single kind of little episode has caused me to belly laugh at least once i would admit to being sort of alan partridge fan for a very long time um one of sort of my favorite uh, comedy shows in all its different iterations and somehow i missed uh, uh that podcast and uh missed its existence and so recently discovered it and absolutely have have guffawed uh pretty much daily listening to it so that was definitely the last time i i managed to laugh that big great and we're recording this just as we're coming out of the the strictest lockdown but maybe you can tell us how you survived lockdown oh that's a really good question i mean a lot of walking uh, i don't think i've ever uh, a big walker anyway never taken so many walks um I, I think i've survived each lockdown slightly differently by focusing on a different thing um lockdown one uh, I, I was reading a lot about eastern philosophy for some reason i can't really explain why but i decided that was my <laughs> my thing lockdown two i think i played a lot of video games as um a, a good distraction and just keep my mind off it and in lockdown three uh, i worked so those, <laughs> those are my different coping <laughs> strategies for the different stages obsessive work for the third one was perhaps not the most fun but it got me through and we're opening up again and maybe i'll relax a little bit yeah, I think lockdown three was the most mundane for people. There was, <laughs> it was back to at some variation of normal. Um, I, it, you you it, don't even kind of learn an interesting skill anymore. You just no. get through the day, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, if you could do any other job, what would it be? I would probably want to be a speechwriter. This was something I've almost done a couple of times um, sort of at, at different points in my career was go off and, and help a public figure write speeches because I've always loved oratory and rhetoric and, you know, the, the, the word spoken aloud to persuade is, is sort of one of my favorite things. And so at a couple of points when I was younger, I considered um, moving off the academic track down that road and 
I always find it kind of intriguing to think about where it would have ended up because it's not really clear sort of where it would go. So we'll go with that. We'll say that uh, uh, if I couldn't be doing this, uh, I'd I'd try and be a speechwriter. But I must say, I do really love my job. And uh, I think I probably have the the best job for me at the moment, um, because sitting around reading and and thinking about things and writing and uh, some of my favorite things to do. And and I love teaching students as well. So definitely not keen to, to give this up. Fantastic. And thanks so much for joining us. It's been wonderful talking. That's it for this episode of Obiter Dicta with me, Gráinne McMahon, and Rachel Sherlock. It's been a fascinating conversation with Professor David Kenny, and we want to thank him for joining us. See you soon.